0: Hey, welcome again to Door Creek Church Online. My name's Mark. Glad that you could join us from wherever you are, whoever you are, and uh, wherever you're at in your own journey of faith, this is a great place for you. We're really excited to launch a new series on prayer, how to talk to God. Before we get into that, I just want to say some things to our church family and to any of you joining us as you just kind of wonder, so what's our take on all that's been going on? And so uh, unequivocally, I can just say, As a church, we mourn, we're incensed and outraged by the senseless, brutal killing of George Floyd up in Minneapolis on May 25th. And um, we affirm that everyone is creating God's image, crowned with glory and honor, and so all lives matter, meaning that black lives should matter. We affirm that. We, We are committed to eradicating racism in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our communities and we want you to know brothers and sisters of color we stand with you and we get that you're tired and you're worn out and you're weary and we own that we're part of that because you've been fighting this battle all along and it's a video like this that has woken and wakened the world to this thing that you know has been going on year after year through the history of our country. So we're committed to doing God's word to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And so forgive our silence if that's what you've, you've heard. We don't want to be silent, and we don't want to just feel bad. We want to work towards God's kingdom being more and more part of our present reality where righteousness and justice reign. At the same time, I know a bunch of us are really focused on the violence that's going on. And so it's really important that you hear what I say right now. Without equivocation, we will never condone any violence, whether it's done by a dirty cop, a looter, or an anarchist, which we've heard a lot about lately. So today's teaching, like the following four weeks, are going to take a prayer in the Bible and use that to grow our life of prayer. And a life of prayer moves to a life of living for God. Talking to God should emanate in a life of living for God. We're never going to ask God for anything in authentic prayer without a willingness to be part of the answer to that prayer. And so uh, we're going to use the Lord's Prayer today. And as we dive into our teaching series, why don't we pray that prayer together? Follow along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. (laughs) I cut you off didn't I for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Weren't you going there? I know I always learned it that way. You probably don't know this but this book, this book of antiquity is the most verified book in terms of manuscript evidence than any other book of history and antiquity by far and in fact the earliest manuscripts don't have that last line in there someone 100 200 years later did what you just did and went, that's a weird way to end that prayer jesus i'm gonna help you out great words great expression biblical true probably not the original teaching that god gave his disciples so how to talk to god yeah, how do we do that? Some of us actually had that model. Some of us know how to do that. My mom was talking to God all the time. She was talking to God when she was at the kitchen sink doing the dishes. For many of us, talking to God is right now trying to talk a language that we've never studied. Like, I have no clue, and please never ask me to pray publicly. So, we're going to learn about how to talk to God, that we might better live for God. And so here's here's kind of the big idea. When we don't know what to do, like right now, when we don't know what to say, well, we need to pray. Pray as Jesus taught us. This is a model prayer. And he's going to talk about when you pray. He's, he's He's assuming this is what we do, because this is like breathing. This is what we do when we're in a healthy relationship. We communicate. We talk. And so the interesting thing is, The first thing he teaches is how not to pray. And he says this in verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is then how you should pray. So, two things. Don't pray like the uh, hypocrites and don't pray like the pagans. So the hypocrites, that word, is actually yanked right out of the theater. Someone who is playing an act, playing a part, in a costume, with a mask on. He says prayer should not be about show. It's not something we do for other people. So that in our insecure relationship with God, because we don't know him as a loving father, but see him as kind of this uh, just kind of cruel, harsh taskmaster, we we kind of find our sense of of religious self-worth and comfort by gaining the praise of people. And he's busting a myth. Oh man, is Jesus busting a myth? That's really important. Because there's so much jacked up spirituality around prayer. And the first thing is, the myth that a praying person equals a spiritual godly person. Maybe, but not necessarily. These people were praying all the time, even on the street corners. But they were praying for the wrong reasons. And they were doing it to the wrong people. They weren't praying to God They were praying for the praise of other people. It was all about themselves. It was a show. It was a pretense. Jesus says, don't do that. And don't be confused that this eloquent prayer makes that person a more godly prayer than your prayer. At the end of the day, prayer is about not bending God's will to ours, not winning the praise of people, but bending our will to God's and winning his reward. Jesus says the cure for hypocrisy, this trap, is privacy. Go to your room, close the door, pray to your father in private. That's what Jesus did. That's what he modeled. He's not saying you can't pray in public. He's going to pray this prayer with his disciples. The disciples were devoted to prayer. Acts chapter 2 tells us that. There are many public prayer meetings that we see in the Bible. But he's just making it clear. Don't get tripped up in your journey of faith thinking somehow that it can be a show don't don't get into this kind of show it's not a pretense and it's not about manipulating God either and that's what he's going to teach about and bust the myth when he addresses the pagans don't babble like the pagans with all their gods and their pantheon of gods and they're just going on with this vain repetition repetition thinking that the more prayer maybe one of the gods will pick it up and maybe they'll show and share a little love to them he said, you don't have to do that because the truth is God already knows what you're going to pray and ask for before you ask for it. And so right about now you're going, so why don't we pray? Well, think about it. That's like saying, why do you talk to your kid? Why do you talk to your best friend? Why do you talk to your spouse? Why do you talk to your lover? Because we're in a relationship. That's why we talk. And our prayer is just as much about doing his will than giving him the cares of our heart. We're expressing our trust in him. This is a profound act of of dependence upon God as we turn to him in prayer. So that's that's how we ought not to pray. And we don't want to get duped into this hyper-spirituality, right? We don't want to get duped in this mindset, well, the more I pray and the more I get more people to pray, then we, like, God has to do it. No, he doesn't. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, God is God and will do what he does. And it's the prayer of one person, James says. The prayer of a righteous person. Not the prayers of righteous people like the more the merrier. No, there's nothing wrong with more. But don't get confused. Prayer, your prayer right now, humbly offered to God, is powerful. When James gave that teaching, he gave an example. He said, Elijah prayed and the heavens stopped raining for seven years. That's powerful. And when he prayed again, it rained. Tap into the power of prayer. So how do we pray? Well, that's what the disciples are asking Jesus. Teach us how to pray. That's exactly what Luke says in his gospel. And so we have this model prayer that guides us. It's not the only prayer that we use, but a guide for our prayer. And it, and it kind of has these six petitions. The first three, about a relationship with God, We're we're praying for his name to be revered. We're praying for his will to be done so that his kingdom would come. We're praying for ourselves and our needs, right? For, For sustenance, daily bread, for forgiveness, what we need every day, right? And for protection from evil, for temptation, and from the devil himself. So he tells us right off the bat that we're to pray to our father, not to my father. And he is Christ's father. But amazingly, he says we can call him father too. That's profound. And why can we do that? Because he created us all. And we have great worth as his children. He's the king. We're going to pray, and we just prayed, your kingdom come. And so we are prince, princes and princesses. We we're royalty. And you need to catch up with this. If you don't have a biblical vo- worldview, and your understanding of how we got here was a, was a cosmic accident you fundamentally have a different view and construct of who we are as human beings. The Bible says we are created by God, we bear his image, and we're crowned with glory and honor. And we pray to him as father, an intimate word, Abba, father. It's, It's this concept of just this very pedestrian dad, daddy. It's an amazing thing that we can do. And so there's two ways we become God's children. One is we're all God's children through creation. And then we're his special children in a relationship now by his grace through faith in Christ. And that is through salvation. Children of God. He's our father. That's who we pray to. You guys, we have a common paternity We bleed the same blood. Doesn't matter what skin color. Doesn't matter what language. Doesn't matter what degree you've had, how much money you've made. We're all the same. We're His children. We need to catch up with that construct as we see all the division around us and start to sort people because of things. There's one construct. We're children of God by creation. Praise God. We're children of the King. That's a secure identity find it in him. And if we are, and have the same father, we're to treat each other as family. Are we doing that? Treat each other as family. So if we do, his family's about making sure that his name is hallowed. I guarantee you haven't used that word this last week, last month, last year, probably in your lifetime, unless you've prayed it. Like, what is that? Well, it's it's the word for setting apart, being made holy. It's It's the word for reverence or honor, acknowledging God for who he is, distinct in all of creation, the eternal, holy God. We're not praying that God grows in his holiness. He is perfectly, infinitely holy. We are praying that God would be revered and worshipped in our lives and through our lives in this world. That's what we're praying. Father, help me to live in such a way that you are set apart and revered and worshipped in my life. A life of worship, our, our first value. Worshipping God in all of life. And that how I live my life actually helps others to revere and know God and respond to him accordingly with honor and praise and worship. That's what we were created for. Isaiah 43 6 and 7 says this, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's what we have in common. We have one father and we have one goal in life, a common paternity, a common purpose, if you will, his glory. And now we're going to see we've got a common job to do, common work and vocation to pray and work that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth, here in our lives, in our families, in our cities, in our nation, in the world, as it is done in heaven. This is our common work. And so when we hear the word kingdom, think about king, God's king, the promised king, Jesus, who came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he showed us what the kingdom is going to be like when he gave those miraculous signs that were pointing ahead to when he would make all things new. When he straightened the shriveled hand and he raised the dead, he was showing us glimpses of the grand finale. These are like fireworks, right? These early miracles of the finale that in God's kingdom never ends when righteousness and justice reign supreme forever. And so we're praying that the boundary of God's kingdom would extend into the reaches and recesses of my heart, that more and more Christ would rule in every area of my life, that his rule would extend every area of our culture, of our city, of our relationships, of our world. And if that's going to happen, it's because we're doing his will, revealed in his word. And so, guys, if we're going to do as his will, as it's done in heaven, we need to understand he's asking us to do his will, not to know his will. Don't just be a hearer of the word of God, James says. Do the word of God. To obey is better than sacrifice. Don't honor the, the, the word here and, and God's will here. Honor it by doing it, accomplishing it. And how can we do God's will if we don't know his word? So I don't know about you, but I guarantee you, you like me have been more tuned into social media than we have in a long time in our life. And you know those analytics come up on our phone that talks about how much screen time and all that? If we had analytics that compared how much time we've had in social media, online, Twitter, and all the other feeds that we've tapped into, and how much time we've had in the word, I think it would be like embarrassing. And I'm talking about myself. No wonder we're confused. No wonder we don't know what to do and to say, because we don't know God's word. God's word does not stutter on the issues of life. It doesn't stutter on what happened on May 25th, what's been happening in our country for hundreds of years. And it doesn't stutter on the violence, and it doesn't stutter on any complex issue, whether it's the pandemic or your financial crisis. It speaks to all of life. And Jesus has been talking about his will. His will that we would have a poverty of spirit. That we'd understand our desperate need for Christ. His will is that we would mourn over sin. Not just point it out in somebody else's life, but over the racism in my heart. And mourn over the injustice in this world. Not just in a moment, like I did that 10-15 yesterday. We mourn. Mourning is an extended period of time. That our strength, our meekness is under control. We're not just lashing out in anger. He's telling us God's will, that that we'd hunger and thirst for righteousness, which includes justice, that we'd be merciful, pure-hearted, peacemakers, and even willing to suffer and be persecuted. That's God's will. So we pray for his glory, his honor, him to be set apart, his kingdom to come, his will to be done. And now we go and we move from that to our common needs. Daily bread, the stuff that helps us do life physically, spiritually, emotionally, every day. Daily bread, forgiveness, because we don't do his will and seek his kingdom first and foremost in our lives. And then protection from the temptation that pull us off the track and the evil one who's out to do us in. So we need strength. Give us This day, our daily bread, Now, here's the deal. Since COVID, you guys have more daily bread stored away in your house than you've ever had before. You've plugged in a new freezer. You've been calling the farmer for a new half a cow, right? And so we got more food, and so we go check. Thank you, Lord, and that's why we pray before a meal. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness in providing for us. But it didn't say, this is how you should pray. Give me my daily bread, Lord. No, it says us. There's a corporate. Do you hear it? There's a He's Our Father. It's us. So so all of a sudden, we got to catch up with half of the world, almost three billion people, whose daily struggle every day is food. And it's just not out there. It's around us right here. And so bless you for filling that van on Tuesdays. Love you guys. Bless you for being part of that team that's growing more produce and I see it popping out. And this year we're going to cross 50,000 pounds of food that's going to the local food pantries. Bless you for your overwhelming generosity that allows us then to be generous to our brothers and sisters in Rwanda who have just been devastated by COVID-19. And we send them relief, those 600 families, and seed, and bless those of you, the 60 who have already sponsored a child, because you know what? You're helping feed that child as you help them be released from the chains of poverty in the name of Christ. And so it's not too late. You guys, I remember when Matt talked to us about compassion. I'm so passionate about what they're doing and saw it on the ground, so excited about our new little guy, Olven. Um, And Matt said, there's like, in the four churches that we're sponsoring there in Honduras, there's like over 300 kids. I said, Matt, our church is so generous. Give us 250. He said, Mark, a hundred would be like a lot. You guys, we're only at 60 kids right now. It's a buck twenty-five a day. And for there's a ton of us. And you know what? Don't do it just for them. Don't do it just for me. I guarantee you the blessing will come back to you tenfold as your heart gets connected with God's heart to a kid there in Honduras and you develop a relationship where you can remind this child that they, by the grace of God, are a prince, that they have value, and that God is going to use them in great ways in their country. So, daily bread, but then forgiveness. Sin here is pictured as a debt. Some of us have it as a trespass, where we transcend it over God's clear boundary line of his word. Jesus reminding us to bring our guilt and to find forgiveness, but there's a qualification Forgive us our debts as we have also, past tense, already done it, forgiven our debtors, those who have sinned against us. Wow. And so Jesus is teaching that forgiven people forgive. And our unwillingness to forgive shows very likely that the devil has a greater foothold on us than God. And that maybe we aren't who we think we are. Because Jesus says this, in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But here it is: if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiven people forgive. So, in your anger, do not sin. Ephesians 4:26 and 27 says, "Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry." And do not give the devil a foothold. Speaking of that devil, he's the one who would lead us into temptation. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation. And we scratch our head at the same time, going, would God do that? And the answer is clearly no. Jesus is using a figure of speech. So he's expressing a truth here. And the way he's doing it here, he is using almost like a double negative. As he speaks about this, he's expressing the truth by negating the contrary. So it's like saying, hey, not a few showed up on State Street at the square to protest this past week, but actually many did. So he's in effect saying, God, lead me away, far away from any trap that I'm about to fall into any neon sign that's flashing, shortcut, you're going to love it, buddy, that's going to lead me over the cliff for my destruction. So lead us not in temptation and deliver us from the evil one. And friends, this is what no one's talking about. Behind all the mayhem and the craziness and all that's been going on, not just this week, not just this month, not just the last decade, not just in the history of our country, but in the history of humanity, all goes back to an enemy who is bent on destruction who is rooted in pride and hated the fact and refused to hollow and glorify God. The very one who was charged to protect his glory rebelled against us and led a rebellion. And he is opposed to God and anyone who bears his image, which means all of us. He is described as a roaring lion who will devour us. He's described as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy And when the scriptures talk about what we're facing today, it says we're not fighting battles that are about flesh and blood. You think your fight is against a white person, against a black person, against a police officer, against a legislator? There are systems of injustice that we need to tear down. But fundamentally, the scripture says this. We fight against powers of this dark world, Ephesians 6, and spiritual forces of evil. You're not going to hear that on the news. And so we must put on the armor of God. If you want to see some messages, we'll put them on the website this week on our resource page. Three messages on spiritual battle and armor because God has given it to us. And the interesting thing is the cul- culminative piece of armor is prayer as we fall on our knees in dependence upon him. All right, so that's the prayer, right? We got to common paternity we got a common purpose we we've got a common work to do right we've got common needs and we got a common enemy but we got a common savior and he has allowed us access to call our God our father grow in that grace so when you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say pray so here comes the panel and I'm going to turn it over to David and I'm going to come back with a couple final thoughts
1: well welcome everyone I'm Pastor David uh pastor of the Northside Madison campus and so glad that you all have joined us today uh, for this very important panel discussion. So we have a number of questions that we're going to ask, speak from your heart. We're all friends here. So let's jump right into the questions. How about that? The first question is, what makes you feel uncomfortable or uneasy when discussions around race come up?
2: Um, I would say for me, I'm married to a black man. We have these conversations constantly, but I think the hardest thing for me is so many of our white friends and our family members will say, "Well, I'm just colorblind. Um, I don't see color. I treat everybody the same. Um, if, you know, I just I base everything off of their actions and their character." Um, sometimes in those conversations they diminish and dismiss who my husband is, um, who my family is, who my friends are, by saying, well, you're just different. Um, You're not like the other black individuals. You're not like the other minorities. Um, And they don't see that he has struggles or that my family members have struggles.
3: Yeah, I think for me, you know, you speak that you and your husband have these conversations constantly. That's not always a conversation that my wife and I are having because uh, there's a lot of things that we just don't think about because we don't necessarily uh, have to. Our desire is to never come across as, as racist or say racially offensive things um, but because we might not have lived experience, we don't have the context to see where that could be a problem. And so being able to properly have a conversation that like I have a my sisters, um, all have studied political science, one particular in policy and one particular in um, like racial justice issues. And so I've spent a lot of time talking to her and, and gave me a lot of context. But without that, I wouldn't, there was a lot of things that i might have said or could have said or wouldn't have said that i just wouldn't have simply have known would have been part of the problem
1: i really appreciate carrie uh what you said about people who say i don't see color it's it's kind of like people think that's an advanced um certificate in race relations you know Uh, i don't see colors you know um but yeah hold them to the fire, you do see color, you know? What color is this? Green, what color is that? Well, you see color, you know? And um, yeah, people need to figure out a better way to express what they're trying to express when they say they don't see color. And I think you said it best, you know, I'm, I don't judge people by their color, you know? Um, and look at their character. And so thank you, thank you all for sharing on that question. Our next question, what is your understanding regarding the nature of our racial problems, what causes them and how serious
3: are they? I think they're a lot more serious than people like to give credit for. Kind of going back to the first question because it's a tough discussion. It can be very uncomfortable. But I, I think one thing as, as a, a white man is is first admitting to myself that I have stereotypes in my head. I have prejudices even if I didn't intentionally ingest them. I would agree that I think the racial issues are serious. I think as a as
4: a, a white person living in a predominantly white neighborhood, we tend not to see oftentimes the things that are occurring and that do go on. And it's easy, I think, to assume that things are pretty good, but then when you meet with and speak with friends from a minority culture, you go, wow, seriously? you?" That seriously happens here. That seriously did happen to you. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, and then you realize that is a reality. Yeah.
5: I, I think that there. Are, I think that there are a lot of white people that just don't see it. Um, you know, we depends on where we live and what we're influenced by around us. But I think that sometimes we don't know what we don't know.
1: Yeah. It's not a crime to be ignorant of those things. Just as long as you have a desire to learn, ignorance just means not knowing. So learning those things is so important and hearing people's stories, that helps us to learn and to um, be empathetic with or sympathetic with what they're going through.
3: When policies or legislation are enacted to what Carry was speaking about before that are designed to disadvantage a group of people, there is no way to stop that from eventually disadvantaging other groups of people. A pertinent thing right now would be unemployment, right? If, if you know somebody who's lost their job because of COVID-19 and had to f- apply for unemployment, if you ask them how smooth that process was, they would probably say that it wasn't. And that was because it was designed to be difficult to uh, de-incentivize people from utilizing it. Um, typically with a particular group of people in mind. And then now that affects other people, other groups, who are now needing it because of situations out of their control. And so that like a lot of those things have trickle down effects. Getting mortgages used to be extremely easy. Now you're signing your life away just to buy a house. So there's a lot of things that I never really had the context or perspective to understand and my initial reaction was no but there's a lot of ways that I realize it affects everyday life for me. If,
4: uh, if one group of society, one group of society members is unsafe and is, if there's violence against that group, then society is not healthy and we are not living in a healthy society. And so thereby, that affects all of us. We all have to live in an unhealthy society and uh, it, it just is something that has to be focused, uh, on uh, accepted that it exists and and fixed.
5: Uh, from a little different viewpoint, um, I'm married to a police officer and um, he deals with violence and crimes and sadly sees the worst of the worst on a daily basis. He puts himself in front of harm's way um, every day. So you know does does racism um, affect me? on a daily basis, yeah, it does. It almost makes you angry at the injustice that raises up this kind of violence and and puts my husband and others in harm's
2: way. I actually, I've I've had a friend say, oh, well, nothing would ever happen to Michael. He's just so kind and so caring, and that's where I get really angry because I said, I can't even tell you the things that have happened to my husband. Being pulled over and being told, I have no reason to pull you over, but still has a gun pointed to him him picking up our daughter from daycare and being questioned who he is and demanding to see a driver's license. Even though our daughter is saying, daddy, daddy, daddy. Even recently, most recently, when we go out to eat, even in some prairie, asking if we want two separate checks. I mean, things like that, I don't know why. And I can only assume, you know, it is because of the color of his skin.
1: Thank you for sharing that story. That's it. Would have been very interesting if someone would have said, "Why do you ask that?"
2: Well, <laughs> um, after you know, coming moving back to Wisconsin, um, it was really interesting because we lived in Milwaukee, and that happened constantly. Um, we would have—I mean, I just dating someone in high school who was black. I mean, I've had complete strangers come up to us and tell us how disgusting it is. Um, spitting on us, um, running us off the road. Did you say spitting on you? Um, and so I, you know, I hate to say that I'm kind of used to that, um, being in a relationship with a, a black man. Um, but then when you have a child, um, it tears you apart a different way. Um, we recently went down South and Vanessa was eight and we sat and talk to her the whole plane ride, preparing her for things that, that might have been said to us, things that, um, I mean, we've, um, well, things that, um, people may give us looks, people may say stuff, people may come up to us. Um, and having to prepare your child for that is not easy. Um, at eight, um, it's, Uh, We've actually had um, people refuse to serve us in New Orleans. Um, We've had, you know, we've had things that most, most white people don't experience unless they are married into, into a relationship with somebody of, who's minority.
1: All right. Next question. So looking over your life, what have you been taught about race and how has it how has that changed over time, and what has God used to bring that change?
5: Yeah, um, I, I mean, I will, I'll speak to my experience. I grew up in Detroit and lived through the riots mm-hmm. in the 60s, watched wow. my town get shut down, not even able to leave our homes at times. I was a junior high teacher in an inner city school that was primarily black, and I think I've been aware from a very young age that there is not equality However, uh, the, the greatest change I think occurred when um, God sent me to work in international ministry. And I, got to, I had the privilege of working with different races and cultures in over 100 cont- countries. And what I learned is that it is my responsibility to understand, to understand the culture, to understand their story. And with that, without that understanding, without learning from them first, there, there is no foundation to move forward. You have to have that foundation.
2: Um, I don't recall race being discussed in our household um, besides what is taught in school. Um, but my first memory was when I was dating Michael in high school and my mom found out and she said, I will disown you if you continue to date him. Um, and my response was, well, I guess I'm disowned. And, <laughs> and then I move forward. But then, kind of fast forward, I remember um, my, um, another family member stating that I only voted for a certain individual because of who I was dating. Mm. And then um, saying, um, like, why would you want to put yourself in a relationship with a black person. It's just going to be nothing but struggles. And what am I going to do with a black grandbaby? Mm. Um, so those are things that have certainly been key memories um, for me and just really understanding that we have a serious issue even within my own family.
4: I was trying to think of what was my first, as a child, what was my first... Uh How did I realize there were different races even? Mm. And I remembered I was riding on mass transit with my grandmother and there was a a black man sitting in front of us and we were dressed pretty casually. He was in a suit and tie with a hat on. You know, I remember the back of his white collar he had a tie and everything on. But my grandmother points out, see that bug crawling on his neck? Those are dirty people and you gotta be careful. Mm. And that actually was my first quote-unquote lesson in race relations, really. It really was. Later in life, when I was still a young child, that kept coming back to me, and then I was thinking, wait a minute, I've had bugs on the back of my neck, (laughs) and I'm not dirty. Mm. I mean, how does having a bug on the back of your neck make you a dirty person? Mm -hmm. I just don't understand, I don't Mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, in some ways, that experience worked two ways. One, it was very negative initially, and, and, and caused me to realize, I mean, I should be concerned about other people who look different than I do, but then it also made me very inquisitive and uh, I wanted to more or less research that issue. of Why should I be afraid of someone who's a different color than I am? Right. There, there was a, a, a kid who I, or, uh, that I met when he was a teenager, and I won't go into all that because it's a fairly long story, but uh, I mean, a, a black, uh, young man who I befriended and was friends of his for many, many years. And, but he was very, very fearful of police officers and, and knowing his experiences, I understood why. Uh, but he trusted me. Mm. And, uh, and so I, uh, there came a time where all of a sudden I saw that there was a warrant out for his arrest and he was a young adult at that time, not a child anymore. Mm. And, uh, and I knew that he would fight if the police went to arrest him, I just knew he would. And uh, which would get him maybe in more trouble. And so I took a chance and I gave him a call. And I said uh, I'm gonna trust you on this but uh, I'm gonna tell you something that I probably shouldn't tell you but there's a warrant out for your arrest. And I said I am going to come down and arrest you and I'm gonna have to put you in jail. But I know you're not gonna fight me. You won't fight me. But I'm afraid you're gonna fight another officer if they come pick you up so I said I expect you to be sitting on your front step I'll be down there in about 15 minutes but realize I am gonna have to take you to jail so I went down he was sitting on the front step I took him to jail and uh, he thanked me I thanked him and then I also told him now that you trusted me to be ready for me as I asked I get off work at 11 o'clock and I'm gonna bail you out at 11 o'clock. Wow. And I did, I wow. went back up to the jail and I paid his bail and got him out. Wow, that is a
1: good story. Well, thank you all so much uh, for participating in our panel discussion. I know it was some, some hard conversation, um, some good uh, thought-provoking things and sharing your experience. I truly do appreciate that. Um, and we, we hope that um, you that are, that are viewing and listening, that you receive something out of this. Um, truly, we are, we are honored, um, uh, we honor God that he has allowed us to have a conversation like this and to, in this time, to be able to, to share our hearts and to share our experiences. So thank you all so much for participating.
0: Well, I hope you get online to see the rest of that panel discussion. It was profound, amazing. I do a little debrief with David at the end. So check it out. It'll be on our resource page. So the, uh, the, the banner page, just go to the bottom. The bottom left should say resources. And you'll see at the top of the resource page, the panel discussion on race. And I think it's going to be a really important discussion of many more to come. Hey, I also want to let you know we've got a really cool event. We're calling it a drop-in prayer event. It's this Thursday from 6 to 8 at our Sprecker Road campus. So this is symbolic uh, on two counts. We're at one church, but we got uh, like a really big parking lot. So here's what we're going to do. You come. If it's by yourself, great. If it's with your family, your kids, awesome. If it's your life group or a friend, come you are going to be social distance you're going to get some chalk and we're going to have opportunities to write out some prayers on the parking lot and it's going to be beautiful and it's what God calls us to do in Jeremiah 29:7 he says seek the peace and prosperity of the city for which I've led you into exile and pray for it so we want to do that for when the city prospers we all prosper so the lord bless you and keep you, and cause his face to shine upon you, and may he be gracious to you. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thanks.